Welcome back, everyone. And if it's possible to have your video on, it's nice to be able to see people. We make that request if that can work for you. <clears throat> and I, I could not find easily um, any um, link to a video of the event that I went to, and I'll, I'll try to. No, maybe I can put something on my website if I find it. But it was, yeah, very inspiring to see. If we, if um, yeah, don't know whether it's being made uh, publicly available. So our theme today will be continuing what was opened up last time. Last time I had spoken about the theme of developing what we could call faith or confidence or trust in our practice, uh, could say really in the deep dimension of our lives. And this theme came out of the theme that I had looked at a lot in March and April, the theme of doing and not doing. And that was pointing to a way of letting go in certain parts of our lives and certain parts of our work or action or being with others, letting go of a kind of doing, letting go of the doer, and yet continuing with the action. We may remember, I think, uh, Lao Tzu says uh, of this non-doing, calling it wu-wei, translated as non-action. Non-action is not inaction. And so we were looking at this somewhat mysterious quality of non-doing as a guide, really, for deepening our own sense of uh, work, being with others, being with the earth. And out of that came some further noticing that to engage in that kind of non-doing, to let go of our controlling or being in charge or, uh, or identifying as the doer, there, it requires some kind of a trust, some kind of trust or some kind of uh, confidence, some deeper kind of letting go of, of the doing self. And so I wanted to explore this theme, and I'll, I'll do that further today. And I'm thinking of this as the last of two sessions on the theme of faith or trust or confidence. Of course, a, a very, very central theme in many, many forms of spiritual practice. So I want to explore that. And the, uh, the terms themselves are sometimes problematic or it's not clear what the best term is. Uh, we may find that using terms like trust or confidence uh, may, be, may work better for us than using the word faith. There, uh, you know, sometimes the very uh, traditional concept of faith seems to be connected for many, maybe maybe in our backgrounds, in our uh, histories growing up. Faith can be connected with a certain kind of 
dogmatism or even uh, pressure or, or fundamentalism. And I, I wanted to give an illustration of this in a moment. Uh, and this, is, uh, this illustration is an illustration of perhaps faith which comes with uh, a certain kind of uh, authoritarianism or power. And this, this is a short video from, um, actually from uh, one of the Star Wars episodes. And this is an episode in which um, one of the uh, persons on like the central board of the, uh, uh, you know, I guess the uh, Imperial Command, uh, this is the chief of the Imperial Naval Navy named Mahdi, he challenges uh, Darth Vader, which is, as you'll see, is not a good thing to do. And Darth Vader says that his faith is, you know, it's uh, uh, Mahdi not having faith is very disturbing. So very short video now. Uh, Tolan will invite us and will let us see this. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes, or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden fort. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Enough of this. Vader, release him. As you wish. <sighs> so this is not the kind of faith that we're encouraging. <laughs> I think that's the first time I've had a Star Wars video in my teaching ever. So um, anyway, that was uh, one manifestation of faith. And... So some of us may choose to use the word like confidence, and we're really obviously pointing to something else that's a little more inner, not so much uh, done on the basis of, uh, uh, as it were, force on behalf of the force. You know, so here we go. So uh, what I want to do is to explore further uh, than we went last time how uh, faith, trust, or confidence develop um, the challenges that we have uh, to our faith or confidence. And particularly, I'll go further and point to what does that faith or confidence or trust look like when it's more mature? And we'll have some chance for uh, some time for discussion. And last time I had suggested some practices for people to do uh, during the last week, I suggested uh, two practices in particular. Uh, what occurs and what does it look like when um, certain kinds of doubt develop for you? When your confidence or trust or faith uh, could be in yourself, in the practice, in maybe in one's life, when, when that is shaken. Just to notice instances when that occurs and then the second practice also uh, related to see what actually supports confidence developing, what supports uh, trust or faith developing. 
and noticing that just uh, moment by moment. So I'll speak a little bit again to review uh, the traditional understanding of, of faith. Uh, the term is uh, sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, in the teachings of the Buddha. And as I mentioned last time, this can take different forms, that, what we, that the sadha can, or faith, as it's usually translated, can mean uh, faith in the uh, Buddha, in the uh, path of practice, in the reality of the Buddha's awakening, uh, to uh, trust the, uh, to have the motivation to follow the path, to, it's framed in, in different sorts of ways. Another context, which I didn't mention last time, is that faith can be an antidote in particular to one of the so-called hindrances to practice. Many of you know the uh, teaching of the five hindrances, or another translation would be the five difficult energies that make uh, practice hard. These are you know, often talked about in retreats or in, in uh, settings like, like ours right now. And the, you know, the five difficult energies include sort of compulsive uh, uh, wanting, compulsive aversion, uh, sleepiness, uh, what's usually translated as sloth and torpor, restlessness, and the last one is is doubt. And this can be, uh, again, doubt in one's own capacity to, to meditate, to practice in different ways. It can be a lack of confidence or faith in a teacher. Uh, you know, maybe a teacher says something or acts in a certain way, which is problematic to you or quite you question it. So one can have uh, a lack, you know, a lack of faith in a teacher or even in the teachings. You can say, okay, this, this, isn't, um, this isn't working for me. I meditate and I'm just distracted all the time. What's going on? You know, you know maybe I should, you know, go back just to yoga. You know, meditation's not for me. That could be an example of this kind of doubt and there, there are many ways to work with that, that kind of doubt. Um, you know, in a main way, in our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice, is simply to, uh, to look, to look at it when it comes up. Study doubt. Bring your mindfulness to doubt. What does it look like? What's going on? Is it about, maybe about impatience or um, frustration? Look for the emotion connected with uh, the doubt. So uh, that's one way we could work with it. We might also be generally, as we get more experienced, we have more of a sense of the ups and downs. That's part, I think, part of a developing confidence. We have a sense that, yeah, there are ups and downs. My mind's distracted sometimes, not distracted at other times, and I can... Uh, you know, there's something in me which knows that larger, as it were, arc of practice. And another response to the doubt would be to bring up faith. That would actually be a more traditional response, and that may work for some of us as well. So these would be all uh, ways of working. Another context in which the term faith appears is in the teaching of the five spiritual faculties, which I mentioned last time, and the fact that uh, these five faculties, they include uh, mindfulness and uh, 
concentration and uh, uh, wisdom, uh, faith, and I think I forget what the other one was. Was it uh, maybe is it uh, maybe energy? I think it's energy, and yeah. And, and so these were often uh, given in, in, uh, in sets, so that wisdom and understanding, with, uh, on, on the one hand, are very much matched up with uh, faith or confidence. And so they need to be in balance. So again, if there are sometimes challenges to faith can really be supported by strengthening the wisdom factor. And if the uh, faith factor is weak and the wisdom factor or the faith factor is strong and the wisdom factor is weak, then we might really want to emphasize the, the wisdom factor. So the direction, I think, of faith in practice goes towards really a kind of deep faith in our own being. We have more and more a sense that our own being, our own individual being, is deeply connected with the being as a whole. That we're not so much these separate individual beings with our own challenges, but that we feel more of a unity to all beings and to being in general. And the deepest kind of faith, I think, can come from that. I am connected with life, you know, and no matter what happens, there's something deeper. And some may call that love, some may call that awareness, some may call that life, some may call that being. And I'll come back to that. But that's, I think, what maybe our deeper experiences point to. That's what the teachings point to. And uh, that's what many of, uh, many of our best teachers and sages point to, something like that. And I think, again, that was evoked last time when we invited a number of people to share what has really brought you confidence, what kind of experiences have brought you confidence. And I think almost everyone pointed to some deep sense of being connected with the earth, with life, with being, with the depths of oneself. And so I'll, this, is, this is what I'll point to in really, really in the whole of our exploration. I'll give, you know, towards the end of the talk, I'll give a little more depth uh, as to what that means. So we may start in our practice with some faith. I think it takes some faith or some confidence just to begin practice, to begin living a life of uh, greater integrity, to be developing our mindfulness and our meditation practice. We may be inspired by a teacher we heard or a book we read, words of wisdom. Uh, we may be, again, inspired by an experience we had. Uh, you know, that, I think that was, uh, I think originally the case for me that um, before I started a formal meditation practice, uh, I actually 
um, had a few things occur. One of them was my my brother was starting to get very interested in spiritual matters. Particularly, he was studying with a Sufi teacher, and that was that was kind of intriguing for me. And then I was also through my reading and study. I was you know in college, and I was studying philosophy and reading a lot about some of the great metaphysical systems. Uh, mostly in Western philosophy originally, reading Plato and Aristotle, and they were getting into deep ideas, and then reading reading uh, Hegel and Kierkegaard and so forth, and something was very intriguing. And I was also um, spending a lot of time in the wilds, and there was something very powerful and beautiful about that. And in one of those times in the wilds, I had something like a mystical opening. And uh, again, it, you know, my, my inclination after that experience was to look for some of these uh, spiritual offerings that were there at the time. And, you know, it wasn't too long after that that I met, uh, I went to Naropa Institute in Colorado and met Joseph Goldstein and later uh, Jack Cornfield met some other teachers and started meditating and pretty much uh, have continued from that time. That was, uh, you know, that was, gosh, that was almost, uh, yeah, almost 45 years ago. So, um, so there may have been experiences like that, which just brought some sense of something deeper that inspired one to, uh, inspired me certainly to begin to look more carefully. And again, it'd be, It'd be fascinating just to ask what that was for each of us, uh, you know, and to, you know, take an hour. It'd be a fascinating, uh, I think, inspiring and confidence-building discussion to do that. Because, uh, and we, we, again, we saw some of that last time. We, we had people share some about uh, what really led people to, uh, to open up. Something was touched. Again, last time, people talked about a deep connection to, to the natural world. Uh, one person talked about a deep connection to to life. Uh, another one was um, after a very difficult experience, a, a death, having something open up that led to a sense of a connection with life. And, you know, another person talked about something that almost like broke through in a very difficult situation. So... These can, these can really be inspiring and give a kind of confidence. I know that for myself, some of those deep experiences, no matter what happens, they're there. And, and there was sort of almost like a confidence. I remember from some of my own uh, initial retreats, some of which were quite difficult, you know. And I remember one retreat where I had a really, really painful, difficult experience where, in a sense, I was, I was uh, in a very, very difficult psychological state for 24 hours. I mean, almost, a, you know, I would say almost a psychotic state. But there was part of me which was watching. There was part of me which had some confidence, even with this fairly horrific state. There was something in me which had confidence, and I I don't know where that came from, you know, so I wasn't 100% lost. I was like 80 or 90% lost, but 10 or 20% was, was there. And it was very, 
very surprising to me. And then the next day, this was in a retreat, the next day I talked with uh, Joseph Goldstein, who was my teacher at the time, and he said, oh yeah, that happened to me once. And I said, okay. And I didn't even think about it, right? Well, you know, and again, this can be see, well, how do you work with difficult experience? That was incredibly helpful. You know, in fact, one of the main roles of teachers is just to normalize everything. We get a lot of training to be a teacher, but it comes down to having a pretty wide breadth of experience, a, you know, a, a lot of experiences that let one test all sorts of things. And then someone comes to you and talks about something difficult and you say, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> and so there's a, there's a kind of a faith or confidence there which can be, it can be shared. And it, it really is related to this way that as we have more experience, and practice our mindfulness both with uh, beautiful experiences and with uh, difficult experience, something grows or something about the confidence of noticing, of seeing, of uh, the confidence in that if I really look at this experience, even a difficult one, that something will be there that has some balance and then in, that if I stay with it, uh, I'll be okay. How many have had something like that experience, maybe in challenging moments, where you're able just to stay present and notice, you know? Yeah, I think, I think very important, very common, you know? And that, that's based on this ability to be present over time, to really stay with these experiences. We may also get faith from... Um, having experiences of deep concentration where the mind is very quiet and blissful and maybe have a sense that there are these inner resources available to each of us of bliss, of uh, awareness that uh, are there whatever is happening externally. And that can actually be, you know, to have a sense that there are these powerful inner resources no matter what happens. And we'll see those can even be there in fairly extreme circumstances. Pretty, pretty amazing. So we have this sense of the workability of experience. That's one major way that faith or confidence or trust develops. We, we have enough experience where we're with the difficult experiences. We're with, you know, anger or fear or sadness or confusion or doubt. And we, uh, we integrate those kind of difficult experiences more and more into our practice. You know, as is said in the uh, Tibetan tradition, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Yay. That's, uh, that's a lot of what's really invited. You know, uh, oh, a difficult moment in my practice. Oh, a chance to learn something. Wonderful. Ah, so much joy in things being difficult. Okay, not so common, right? But that, that is possible. That is possible, especially, you know, especially if we work with, with intention. So these difficult experiences can really be ones which test us. They test our faith or confidence we may lose faith, we may be caught in reactivity, it may lead us to 
stop our spiritual practice. You know, it can be somewhat of a vicious cycle. One difficult experience leads to another. Um, and so it's actually a very important part of the development of confidence or faith, again, to take difficult experiences as part of practice. And again, we may start with moderately difficult experiences, not the worst, not the most difficult. Start with a little bit of impatience in one's meditation practice and say, let me inquire into what's happening. What is this impatience? Let me notice what it's like in the mind and body. So again, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Wonderful, wonderful guidance. So we may work, uh, there's one teaching which is very, very helpful for pointing out these difficult experiences called the teaching of the eight worldly winds. It points out eight different ways that we can get a little bit stuck or lost. We can get lost in pleasure and pain, gain and loss, uh, sort of fame and disrepute, uh, having a, people think good things about us or bad things, and uh, what's the other one? There is another set. So pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. Uh, um, you remember, Heidi? Why don't you say it? Praise and blame. Praise and blame. Who could for, how could I forget that? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you. So praise and blame. Anyone got a little bit tripped up by praise and blame? Okay. Um, wonderful. I praise you for noticing. No, okay, just just joking. Um, and so watching these eight states is a wonderful way, and working with them is a wonderful way to develop uh, confidence or faith or trust. Again, uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, what we could call fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Put those on your refrigerator. Or, or somewhere. Notice. Notice them when they come. It's a wonderful way to look at things. And again, last time we mentioned some other uh, challenging experiences that can really challenge uh, our faith or confidence. Um, you know, maybe being ill or injured. That was mentioned last time. We can have uh, experiences which uh, knock us around, maybe make it harder to practice, or the... the uh, Stability of mind isn't there in the same way. Very important to bring in practice. I think particularly bring in compassion, bring in the heart practices. So, you know, illness or injury, um, some sense of being uh, separate from others, you know, can bring or some types of psychological challenge that we have, being in difficult mental states, emotional states, maybe... Uh, having residual dimensions of trauma come up. Um, these can be, uh, these can really throw us for a loop. One person last year asked about what makes faith or confidence or trust hard says the year 2020, <laughs> right? That was uh, just, you know, all the challenges associated with the pandemic. Uh, very, very hard. We also mentioned different um, events in the world. You know, maybe it could be violence or just the, uh, you know, the political polarization that we have in the United States and or 
you know, just the way that the political process gets very, very stuck or, you know, you know, could be the violence that's happening now in many parts of the world, whether in uh, Myanmar, Burma or, uh, or Israel, Palestine, you know, that these can throw us, you know, and even sometimes uh, far greater violence, you know, can people's faith can get really uh, challenged by these sorts of situations. Um, one whole area that I wanted to bring in a little bit, actually I'm going to do a, uh, a screen share, is what we might call the, uh, the dark night of the soul. This is something which is increasingly common in our times. Um, uh, the dark night of the soul, I'll, I'll, in a moment I'll do a screen share and show some uh, traditional understandings. It's a term which comes from the from the 16th century, from a Catholic mystic named St. John of the Cross. And it really refers to this period, which he said occurs not for beginners, but for people who have considerable spiritual experience. And there comes to be a time when everything feels dry and flat, and you read a book and it doesn't matter. You read, you know, you meditate and it doesn't matter. Nothing seems to be working. And again, there can be many reasons for this dark night of the soul. It could be that, again, residual trauma may come up and be predominant for quite a time. It could be for six months or a year. And sometimes this uh, dark night of the soul can last for a year or two years or three years. There's... Um, person in the medical school at Brown University named Willoughby Britton, you can look up her work, B-R-I-T-T-O-N, who's actually done interviews with contemporary spiritual practitioners about their own dark nights. And it's, uh, you know, she says that some of these can last for some time. So I wanted to note this because this is something which can challenge faith. And again, it doesn't occur at the beginning of practice. It's very you know, it's very interesting. I think it's also something that can be there, you know, as, you know, maybe there in our future as world events get more challenging, right? There can be a way that we go into a state of uh, our faith and practice and love and the human spirit can be challenged by not just on a personal level, but on a collective level. So I think for us as practitioners, Knowing something about this dark night can be really, really important. So I'll, I'll do the screen share now and show a few slides just to give a sense of this. Okay, this is... Um, this is St. John of the Cross, again from the 16th century. Uh, he's, he's living in Spain, and he's a, he's a monk or a friar. Very interesting person. It seems like in his background, he probably has uh, both Muslim and Jewish background, you know, maybe coming from North Africa. So a very unusual figure. But he's, you know, he's a Catholic uh, practitioner, and he... Um, is doing work with uh, Teresa of Avila, 
who then they are trying to really bring back uh, the depths of spiritual practice, which in a way have been lost, have been lost in the previous centuries. And yet they come up against the, uh, the authorities. Some of these authorities uh, make John, Saint Ju- the one we now call St. John of the Cross, a captive, and they hold him in a monastery in, a, in, a, you know, in the basement, in the dark, for nine months. And this is actually when he writes much of his book called The Dark Night of the Soul, you know, uh, when, he's, when he's a captive in this monastery. And this says, here, here are some readings from his book. He says there are two parts of the dark night of the soul. And I'll just read here. This is an intermediate or advanced process, not the state of the beginner. One sense of spiritual connection and all the maps seem to dry up. John says, practices become tasteless. God wings them so that they become strong. This seems very strange. Everything seems backward. This is a time of purification and surrender, being in the holy darkness of unknowing. Says the soul must surrender into peace and quietude, even if there is a sense of wasting time and being lazy. Doing nothing accomplishes great things. This is a place of doubt and being with things as they are, rather than as as we think that they should be. So again, he's talking about this process, which can occur, you know, in meditation practice. It can also occur just in one's life. The second part is more difficult even. The religious and spiritual concepts have been dismantled. It may look like a crisis of faith and may last for years. We enter into radical unknowing. He describes this as being as if inside the whale, like Jonah, often without any hope of leaving the darkness. However, being with the dark may eventually open into illumination, at first only with occasional glimmers and yearnings. John says, without the labor of the intellect, the soul may find spiritual sweetness. The purification is not over. The essential part is still to come. What we have to do is to keep our eyes shut and walk the path in darkness. The soul walks to God through human unknowing. And so this is a, a process that we can, we can see in contemporary people. We can see this in the tradition. And, you know, I think a lot of people have found this work on the darkness of the soul, very, very helpful in a contemporary way. And I've I've taught, maybe some of you have been there, I've taught twice, um, several day uh, workshops or retreats, typically with my colleague Marisa Handler on this theme, because it's very, I think, increasingly important in this time. And it's probably a, a, a more intense manifestation of this doubt or of this challenge to uh, to practice. And I wanted to mention another very challenging situation I think is good to know about. This was a, a very difficult uh, experience that um, was was had by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This was actually, I think, in 1955 or 56, right in the middle 
of the of his initial work with the Montgomery bus boycott. This is you know after Rosa Parks refused to get off the bus, and he was a leader. He was only you know he was only about uh, you know twenty six twenty seven years old. He was living in Montgomery, and he went through a very deep crisis of faith at one point. Um, he was not sure whether he was really being effective. He had he was receiving. This was a time before message machines. He had been receiving obscene and threatening phone calls continually, and he was having a kind of crisis of faith. Should I stay with this work or continue or or give up? Should I go back to my parents in um, Atlanta, Georgia? Should I continue? And he had been in he had been in jail. He was really having a, a difficult time with this. And one day, uh, he um, actually, I think the day after his time in jail, he came home uh, very, very late after a meeting. And his, uh, his wife and his daughter were asleep. And another phone call came. This was at midnight. Another phone call came, and it, it used the N-word. It said, we are tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of town in three days, we are going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And although he had received calls like that before, something in him was further troubled. He had been having these challenges for some time, and he, he couldn't sleep. He sat down at the kitchen table, and he made himself a cup of coffee. And later he reflected, he, told, he talked about this experience. This is what he said. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. It was midnight. You can have some strange experiences at midnight, he said. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter she was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. And I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking of, about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife, also asleep. She could be taken from me or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I... I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on, on mama now. You got to call on that something, that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. He said, I bowed over that cup of coffee, and I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up. 
for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. He said, I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And he said, almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. A few days later, his house actually was bombed. He was in the church, but no one was hurt. He was actually in the church and spoke briefly after he had just got word about the, about the bombing. And people were amazed at his level of calm. And he later said, my experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. So another, you know, another powerful experience that can be helpful to remember. So again, maybe two more, two more areas to, to reflect on. One is that there are these times when things are really hard and there's something that's a part of faith or confidence that uh, I called last time, not knowing but keeping going. You know, and I've had this in my life many times when I wasn't quite sure what was happening, but I kept going. There was something which kept me going. So there is a part of confidence or faith is to not always know exactly what's happening or how things will work out, but one keeps going. You know, and we can again see this in the life of so many people. Even Dr. King, the story I just told, um, even the Buddha on his journey where he had six years and a lot of those years he didn't know what was going on but he kept on his search. Um, I also mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh five years uh, after he had to leave Vietnam and really not being sure what was happening but he went on retreat and something something deepened. So we can ask how could I and even in difficult times find a way to keep going what helps you know, maybe remembering some of these stories, remembering our own experience, finding our own resources. So what does the what does this quality of faith or confidence or trust look like as it gets more and more developed? There seems to be a profound sense of letting go, an ability to not have to control or even sometimes do things so much. The ability to let go uh, very often of the uh, consequences of one's action. One can, part of this letting go is to keep on acting and doing one's best and trying to do what seems most skillful, but in a way not being overly attached to the outcome. There's a kind of a deep faith there. Continual action, but not being fixated or trying to control the results. One does one's best at a meeting or with a particular social action, but then there's a kind of letting go of something and you keep on acting. You keep on acting, but you let go of 
trying to control the outcome too much because it's out of one's control. There's something very uh, central to this mature faith about that process. Keeping on doing what is best. Not doesn't mean being passive, but there's a kind of letting go. It's related to a quality of equanimity that gets stronger as faith and confidence and trust get stronger. The equanimity of being balanced with whatever comes up increasingly, of having a kind of balance, unshakability, uh, but also responsiveness that can be there more and more without being shaken too much. And again, a lot of that comes out of having one's faith or confidence or trust the ground for that deepened by being with this wide range of experiences, including a wide range of challenging experiences. As one's practice matures, the quality of faith gets deeper. This is from one of the uh, suttas, one of the teachings of the Buddha. He and Sariputta are talking about the process of developing wisdom and peace. This is called the Apanasutta. And they say that the culmination of developing wisdom and developing a sense of peace is to develop a quality of faith. This is, this is from the text. A practitioner who has developed these qualities will experience what was called the remainderless fading away of the mass of darkness recognizing all is peaceful. Those things that before I had only heard about, now I dwell having con contacted them with the body and having pierced through with wisdom. That is faith. That is the faculty of faith. So as one's wisdom develops, as one sees more, faith develops hand in hand. One sees more into things. You know, and again, it can be called by different names. It can be called a deepening of wisdom. It can be called uh, um, feeling the, the depths of our being, the, the depths of our being in a kind of loving awareness. You know, that, that's a phrase that I heard first from the uh, teacher Ramdas, but it's very close to what we find with the teachings of the Buddha and many, many traditions that it's having a kind of faith that at our depths, who we are is loving awareness and that our individual being is no different than this, than this spacious, balanced, loving awareness. And it's having the lived experience more and more that that's our, that that is who we are. It may have, we may have a sense even that as we go deeper in this, that the very nature of the universe and its uh, groundedness and awareness is manifesting through my awareness. That I am a manifestation of the depths of the universe. Nice experience, <laughs> right? But there, that, can, that can be part of this experience of faith that I can have a sense that I and the depths of the universe are closely connected and that I am actually manifesting as the awareness of the universe coming to know itself for itself, by itself, through itself. That can be part of the depths of faith. And so 
from that perspective, what can look like what is painful or difficult is seen in a different perspective. There can be even a faith in very, very intense experiences. And, you know, I think I'll, I'll just finish with uh, two passages that bring this out. Uh, one is from an amazing text from uh, a young woman named Etty Et, Hillesum. Anyone know Etty Hillesum's work? She was a Dutch woman, Jewish, who was in her early 20s, in the early 1940s, as the Nazis came to occupy the Netherlands and, and Amsterdam, where she lived. And she kept a journal, which in one translation is called An Interrupted Life, which is one of the most profound books I've ever read. It shows her growing and deepening spiritual maturity during the occupation, and then even as she's led off to uh, an internment camp, also in Netherlands, and eventually she is uh, taken to Auschwitz where she's killed. But her, her book survived. And this, this is a kind of, a, again, a, a depth of faith that is quite remarkable. And this is what she wrote from the internment camp. I think I have learned to take it all in, to read life in one long stretch. I want to be there, right in the thick of what people call horror, and still be able to say life is beautiful. The misery here is quite terrible, and yet late at night when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire. And then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it, that's just the way it is, like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Amazing, right? Amazing. I'll just close with part of a text from, I think the sixth century from China this is a text called Verses on the Faith Mind by uh, Seng San, who was the third great uh, ancestor in the Zen tradition. And it's pointing to that deep kind of faith. Do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. If the eye never sleeps, all dreams will naturally cease. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are as they are, of single essence. In this world, there is neither self nor other than self. To come into directly into harmony with this reality, just say when doubt rises, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is not to worry about perfection or non-perfection. To put your trust in the heart-mind is to live without separation. And in this non-duality, you are at one with your life source. So I'll stop there. Thank you all these wonderful beings who have spoken through my mouth. <laughs> Amazing beings. Let's just pause for a moment and let this resonate.
and see if there are any reflections or questions or sharings coming out of that silence. Great, so let me ask if anyone would uh, like to share something. It could be a story about uh, a difficult time where there was some confidence built. It could be a question about anything in the talk or just a reflection that comes from the talk. You can use raised hand function or maybe uh, Tolan and I can also see you if you would raise your physical hand. And thank you for thank you for those who are willing to speak. I think it, it helps our time together be be richer. Please, uh, is it Anna? It's, it's me again, um, since um, I think for me it's continuity, the what helps building. And I had a time where I tried to practice and after three weeks of just crying every time I tried, wow. I gave up. Wow. I, I, it, because I couldn't bear, I just physically and mentally couldn't bear um what was happening, I guess, or what I was going through. Um, it took me a couple of, probably a year to come back to it. Um, but the other day at a retreat with Jack Cornfield, I was wondering about this. How do you connect to things when you're disconnected? Um, and I think it's only by remembering or trying to remember when practice worked. Um, yeah, yeah. So in that difficult time, were you still coming back to mindfulness practice? I was trying, but then after three or four weeks, I just gave up. I you, just you gave up. Yeah. Yeah, I really gave up because I couldn't. Um, I didn't have the. I just didn't have it. Trying to just. Yeah, but something, uh, something, uh, you know. Again. Uh, formal practice is one support, but was there something that was also sort of uh, helping you to stay balanced during that difficult time? Not really. No, no I, think, I think maybe, no, it was just one of those times where just your life is just oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in the future, if that will be much stronger or much more grounded, in having practiced more and having read more, done more, lived more, I don't know. But um, yeah. I think it's interesting to hear you speak about confidence. Um, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Anna. So, yeah. I so sharing. I don't know. But I'm pretty new to all of this group thing. It's nice to have a group. Very wonderful. It's amazing to have a group. And I, I 
start seeing some faces from the past weeks. And I'm so, Ruth, I really like Ruth. I look at Ruth's face and I'm really excited. Um, so I think having a group is really, really helpful. And I didn't have a group back then. It was just me. Yeah, very so, much. Having a, one of the main supports for difficult times is community. Yeah. Community or even sometimes one other person. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know that... Uh, I have one person who I worked with and was going through a kind of uh, dark night of the soul experience, and we just uh, checked in every day. Sometimes not very long, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Just that sense of connection. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. Yeah. Where Where are you in Germany? Berlin. I'm looking at the biggest part of Berlin right now. It's oh wow. Really beautiful. Oh yeah. 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 I was a uh, I was a student in Berlin for a summer. Yeah. I hope you had fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. It was uh, it was a long time ago. It was still when I I would make trips to East Berlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going to a really interesting. I went to a rock concert in, in East Berlin. <laughs> anyway, not to get too much into that. So thank you, Anna, and uh, other other sharing or questions. Again, you can use raised hand or just raise your hand. I think I can see or, or Tolan can see. Uh, please, Lucy. Yeah, Yeah. Um, this isn't my own dark night of the soul, but when you were talking about how sometimes someone can inspire you to get started um, in faith, and this particular person is not a teacher of Buddhism, but she's a human um, who I'm very inspired by. And she has been in prison for the last 35 years, wrongly convicted of the um, murder of her husband. Mm. And um, talk about somebody who doesn't know the outcome, but keeps on going on. Yeah. She like has been a real inspiration to other incarcerated women that she's been incarcerated with, like mentoring them, um, helping them to be successful so they can be released. And, um, you know, she's been in place through that the, um, this organization puts on the prisons and just um, keeps on keeping on. And I'm sure that she has her moments of despair um, and maybe she's attached to the outcome, <laughs> but she's so inspiring to me because despite her situation, um, she keeps on and, um, she just has a real positive spirit. So she's someone that really inspires me. Thank you, Lucy. And again, <laughs> what is her name? Her name is Patricia Pruitt. Yeah. She's, um, she's in prison in Missouri. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, there's something that uh, those those examples of uh, kind of a, a way of keeping balance and equanimity over time in challenging situations, people whose stories we know, you know, um, you know, my mind went when you were talking about uh, Patricia to uh, the story of Nelson Mandela, right? Just years and years, and coming out of that and not being bitter, 
right? some kind of balance and equanimity and not being bitter, very remarkable, some kind of almost like faith in the human spirit. And again, it's mysterious how that's there for some and maybe not there for others, but we can we can learn from those examples. Yeah. Uh, please, uh, Rich. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think it's really helpful to have this perspective of the dark night of the soul being something that comes when you get to a certain level of mm. practice. Um, I've probably been practicing, you know, 25 years, maybe somewhere between there and 30 years. And it was kind of easy in the beginning and things flowed really nicely. And it's not that I didn't have challenges in my life, but the whole meditation was usually a safe haven for me. And it was almost like a luxury. Um, and the last five to 10 years, I would say, especially the last couple years, it's been like survival. Wow. And it feels like, you know, many, many times I've had this thought of what, where did I go wrong? You know, mm. like everything was going so well before and I was doing so well and it seemed like everything was so easy and, you know, practice was always kind of a positive thing, almost always, you know, even long retreats would sometimes be challenging at points, but then it would be, and, you know, this idea that you get to a certain level and then this dark night of the soul comes and it's part of the process, um, I think is is valuable to, to, to keep in mind because that's been a recurring kind of question of faith for me. It's like, is this doing anything? Is this helping? I mean, it seems like it's a survival tool now, but maybe if I wouldn't have gone down this path, I wouldn't have drudged up all this stuff, you know, like it seems like my life before I started meditating was way easier, you know, like maybe I, should just stop. So uh, anyway. Yeah. Thank you, Rich. Like the bliss of ignorance. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, I know people who don't meditate, you know, and like, and they are kind of and blissfully going along, you know, but the amount of suffering that they experience seems to be less than what I experience. Yeah. At least, and this at least whole it, idea of like, am I failing? Am I doing this wrong? Or, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Rich. Uh, yeah, I think it's very, very helpful to have a, a map that includes the dark night of the soul as something that sometimes happens. It doesn't occur for everyone, probably not for most, but it, it, it occurs for some, for sure. And it's very helpful to have a map that includes that and, that, um, and to have a teacher who, who, who knows that map and who can actually have a sense of how to work with that. It does, you know, there, there are ways in which something like the dark night of the soul does appear in uh, other Buddhist contexts, you know, and I think, as I mentioned, in the life story of the Buddha, you can interpret some of that as a dark night. And also, uh, you can, you know, there are uh, people who have interpreted aspects of Zen practice in that way. And, you know, some aspects of... Uh, 
the uh, path of insight meditation, uh, as outlined by Mahasi Sayadaw, has certain stages which could be called the dark night. Uh, so it's really helpful to know some of that and to know how to how to respond to it, you know, and to to frame it. So I think that's why it's again I think it's more being recognized just in the last five years or so. So it's really uh, important to frame it because then we can see oh, you know, again to in a sense normalize it and and have you know ways to work with it. Yeah, thank you, Rich. Thank you. Yeah, I see. I see one more. We're we're kind of at time. Richard, could you? Uh, is yours a brief question? If you if you have a, something brief and maybe that I could answer in a brief way, let's let's go there. I think the reason why this happens later in one's practice is because early in one's practice, you still have confidence that you're not doing it right, mm-hmm. and the payoff will be later. Mm-hmm. But later in one's practice you lose confidence in the method itself. You say, I've read all these books, I've done all this stuff, and it's blowing up on me now, so it's a much deeper level of lack of confidence. And that's why I think the dark night of the soul comes to those who are intermediate and advanced in practice. Yeah, yeah. Thank thank you for that uh, addition, Richard. I think, yeah, it's really interesting dynamics. And... Again, it can take the dark night, if we call it that, can take different forms. Sometimes it can, you know, just be there for a short time. Sometimes it can be for a longer time. But there, you know, there are ways in which maybe we've been going along just with a routine and then something just uh, knocks us, you know, maybe an external event or a loss or a death knocks us around for six months or, or nine months or a year. How many can relate to something like that yeah and then and and yet there's i think as you're pointing to richard there's something there's something uh as it were more mature that's um we're being invited to learn that's one way to say it and to have that framing really helps because we can think oh i've just you know i've lost it or you know it's not working and and a lot of times it's more that we're being invited to a deeper level and that's where we really need community and teachers and some people who can frame it like that. So thanks everyone for this exploration of uh, faith and confidence and trust. Uh, let me just invite uh, a minute or so of silence to ask everyone to reflect quietly. How would you take this further? You know, again, some forms that you can bring this in your practice might be to be on the lookout for what knocks you out of your center or out of your confidence first, and then what helps build that sense of faith or confidence. How might I take this further? So just about a minute to reflect quietly. And then we'll close, as we usually do, with a dedication of merit. May our time together be a benefit to us, be a benefit to those in 
our circles and our lives. And then may the benefits be offered beyond those circles, beyond our own immediate lives, out into the world for the benefit of all. May we offer the benefits to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you for your practice and for your, your own explorations in this area. And if you want to unmute, we can uh, say goodbye. I'll say goodbye generally. Till next time. And you can unmute and say whatever you'd like. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thank you. Blessings and love to you all. Yeah. Thanks. Salut et tschüss to those in France and Germany. Bye-bye. <laughs>